1: back with an all-new episode
2: of Keep It. I'm Ira Madison third. And I'm 1957 Best Actress winner for The Three Faces of Eve, Louis Fertel. So happy to be here and doing great still. I played all three of those faces. This is the Oscar nominations episode. I had to start off with something like that.
1: Of course, everyone is always looking forward to this episode. Although it feels very, like I said, it feels very weird. We talked about nothing but awards for Three episodes straight. It's I know. Hammies, I mean, like I'm clothes, on a major Oscars. high. It
2: feels like I keep like I keep taking <laughs> Molly every single week. Um, but I'm coming back down to Earth now, especially because our guest is so esteemed. Also, a great friend of the podcast, friend of mine, uh, and appropriate for this episode because she is an Oscar winner, a Tony winner. She has a new movie, Lisa Frankenstein, coming out, but this person is just a pop culture superstar in every regard. She also very much cares about the personal life of Vanna White the way I do. So thank you for everything you bring. Diablo Cody, welcome back to Keep It.
3: Hello. Thank you so much for having me again. And you just triggered me by bringing up Vanna.
2: I know. I mean, I can't even (laughs) pick a favorite part of her personal life at the moment. (laughs)
3: <laughs> yeah, her daughter
2: is a tattoo artist named Gigi. I mean, that's where we're at.
3: The Vaniverse keeps expanding. Yeah. And like, there's just always more to find out about her.
2: Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think she maybe is dating somebody now. Didn't she run into Brian Wilson once at a restaurant or something?
3: Brian Wilson ran into her at, I believe, the Glendale. And I love how I'm just going to casually drop the restaurant as if this isn't my hyper fixation in yes. life. And <laughs> she, Brian Wilson, who, you know, obviously is a man who's run in A-list circles his whole life. He was so starstruck by Vanna White and it made me love him even more.
4: Right. Because, he gets it. Like,
3: you should be starstruck by Vanna White.
2: Right. Yeah. Also, after all he's been through psychologically, mentally, to come out on the other side and know that Vanna is his superior. Exactly. A smart man. A smart man.
3: <laughs> when you come out from psychosis, that should be your first thought.
2: <laughs> Where
1: are the letter turners? Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I would follow Vanna White updates if it were online. Like I, I that that's something that I feel like I would like to know more about. Does she have a memoir? Uh how can I dig Does into she? Yeah, the yeah Vanna she does life? have a
3: memoir called okay. Vanna Speaks.
2: Yes. It's very it's oh, from the okay. 80s. Yes,
3: yeah. right.
2: Which by the way, <laughs> well, I'm sorry to go down this. We have a lot to talk about today. Vanna Speaks, which is a play on Garbo Speaks, a movie from the same time because Garbo was famously reclusive and so Vanna kind of comparing herself in that regard. Perfection. She is absolutely yeah. right, to.
3: Oh, of course she is. You know? Yeah. I would say the mystique <laughs> is about equal there. Yes. Yeah. <laughs>
2: right. Yes. Oh, my God. I, unfortunately, I could do a whole podcast episode about this, but we have a lot to get to. Ugh. Um, We will be talking about uh, Brooke's new movie, Lisa Frankenstein, in the context of our favorite women characters in horror movies. Uh, Ira, I guess, will be opinionated about this, too. We'll see if we get to him. Uh, And then also, the Oscar nominations came out today, as we just mentioned. Um, A lot to discuss there, namely in the acting categories, uh, I believe. But let's begin... A lot going on. Yes. Let's begin with Lisa Frankenstein. (laughs) If I'm not mistaken, the first time you brought up this movie to me it was during the pandemic and you you said something like, oh yeah, I'm writing a body horror comedy. I have no idea if it'll really come out. Like your safe space just hanging up by yourself is like Dario argento <laughs>
3: Yeah, I mean, well, mm-hmm. I, obviously it was a heightened and surreal time yeah. for all of us. And I was just like sitting at home. I'm suddenly like a homeschool mom, which was never an ambition of mine. But like, you know, the plague shut everything down. And I was like, I'm going to write a movie. And at the time I had you know, I was in a dark place, understandably, as as were we all. And I just started thinking about I, I think for years I had had this idea of maybe like a, a girl with a with a dead boyfriend. And I just thought like now is the time. And I just started writing it. But it, it was such a it was such a, a quirky idea as much as I despise that word as it applies to my body of work um, that I didn't think that it was going to. Like, I'm surprised that we're sitting here discussing the finished film. I'm very happy, but I'm surprised.
2: Is it... I assume it was satisfying in a similar way to write the now cult classic Jennifer's Body. How would you compare the experiences of writing those movies?
3: Well, I mean, I think going into Jennifer's Body, I was probably a lot more... um, feeling a lot more lively and arrogant because I was coming off of a huge hit. And now, you know, I'm just kind of a... (laughs) beaten down John Arbuckle type figure.
4: <laughs> like,
3: sorry, I mean, I'm just like, no, I, I, I was, it was great. But like, I was definitely, I, as you can probably tell, I'm a, I, after almost 20 years in Hollywood, I've become a much more cautious and pessimistic person because I've seen the ups and downs and it's, you know, it's a rodeo. So I just thought, oh, let's, let's see how this goes. Whereas when I was writing Jennifer's Body, I'm sure my train of thought was like, let's see what's next for this genius. Me.
4: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I want to say that I really adored this film. Um, thank you. It's really funny. Uh It's, it's definitely like you, you are watching it and you're like, it's unmistakable that Diablo Cody like, did this dialogue, for one. And I want to thank you for two things in it. Well, one, it's set in the 80s, which is great, because I feel like you always sort of want – I'm always going back to teen movies that are set in the 80s. I feel like just watching 80s films in general. I don't know. I was watching the Slumber Party Massacre movies nice. earlier this week yeah. before we even decided to talk about women in horror. And uh there are so many beautiful references to Wisconsin in the 80s, uh, that I love, particularly Rocky Rococo's, Oh, which I love is Rocky a pizza chain, largely in Wisconsin that I used to go to the mall to eat Rocky Rococo's breadsticks, and that was my movie snack every weekend. I would get the breadsticks and sneak them in to the theater for whatever movie I was watching. So, loved remembering Rocky Rococo's from your movie. <laughs> no, first of all- and- We had Rocky Rococo in <laughs> Illinois as well, just so, say- so you oh, know. You okay. it yeah. was an
3: upper Midwest thing, yeah. I was
2: gonna say, I'm not familiar. I don't even remember that, interesting, yeah. Well, Brooke mm. and I are from the same, or Diablo is what we're calling her. We're from <laughs> the same hometown, yes. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. and the second thing I wanna
1: thank you for uh, is I'm always gonna love a Days of Our Lives reference. So Okay, that was my favorite was that's perfect. my favorite
3: line in the movie, and I'm so glad that you appreciate it. And the way that Catherine Newton sells that line makes me very happy because I wasn't entirely sure. It's hard to have a conversation with a character that I can't answer. And she has a way of completing his thoughts for him when he's just standing there mutely and like groaning. And that that scene was yeah. a key example of that.
1: I thought, it was, I thought it was a really, really good joke, mostly because I watched it with a friend who does not, he did not grow up on Days of Our Lives like me and also does not still watch it every day on Peacock like I do on my lunch break. <laughs> um, and so for me, when she's making the joke, I know the character, Patch is still on the show, by the way. Uh, he came back from the dead. Uh, so I can see where the joke is going, but the way she delivers it, is so funny where he laughed because he didn't know who Patch was and I laughed because of her delivery and I thought it was my favorite joke. Uh, of the I, YouTube, that, so.
3: Honestly, that makes my day. I'm glad that you enjoyed that because I felt like, you know, uh, maybe this will only be humorous to fans of Days of Our Lives, but you're telling me that it could work both ways. I'm glad yeah, to know does. that.
2: Is, soap, <laughs> are, is are soap operas a critical part of your upbringing? Did you watch them at all?
3: Um, I was never like, you know, I knew I knew people who would rush home from school to catch Guiding Light or whatever. And that was not me, but they were they were an essential part of growing up in the 80s. Yeah. I mean, everyone's mom watched soaps, grandma's, like, they were part of the wallpaper. Right. So I was always familiar with the, like, big iconic characters like Patch or, like, Luke and Laura, Bo and Hope.
2: Yeah, people would turn it's in itch. for the Luke and Laura wedding. I mean, that was, like, the MASH-level phenomenon of a certain
3: hour of television. Yeah, it was a bit... I like that you referenced MASH as if you were making this relatable to a modern audience. You're like, guys, Luke and Laura's wedding was as big as M.A.S.H., just for context.
2: This is what we do here at
1: Keep It. I know. (laughs) That's why I love it. To make it slightly relatable, I would say that one thing I've loved about going back and looking at old clips of even just soap opera actors on um, talk shows and things, you know, and particularly I was reading um, that Crazy woman Camille uh, Paglia, uh her book. Uh she she wrote a lot about um the vamps that she loved on Young and the Restless. Uh so there's a lot of essays from her on that. But she also would write about in present day Real Housewives. And I would say that there was a period where, you know, Real Housewives and Vanderpump Rules, uh, people online were shocked that there'd be articles or essays about them. And the New York Times is like, oh, Roxanne Gay watches this, like smart people watch this. And it's Really interesting if you look at old so – I was watching this talk show clip of um, Melody Scott Thomas from um, Young and the Restless on a talk show with a psychiatrist who was sort of analyzing the characters and having a conversation about how very smart people who are academics watch soap operas because everyone watches it. It sort of permeates culture, and I find that that makes sense for you then even if you weren't a big like rushing home to watch it. It was on all the time. It's on the same way that Lewis doesn't watch Bravo, but you can't be at a party without hearing someone next to you talking about, well, did you hear
2: that uh, this person did this at the reunion last week? Right. No. If I'm on Twitter, I have to mute the words like Sutton Strack and stuff just to get through my day because that <laughs> would absolutely you choke can't, the timeline. You can't,
3: avo- you can't avoid it. I've never seen Vanderpump roles, and yet I understand this entire scandal that happened despite not yes. watching it. Because I have heard about it so much.
2: Right. No, yeah. it's in a way reassuring to have anything. It's not quite monocultural. Like, I don't know that it's, like, totally extending outside the realm of, like, women and gay men. But, like, it's nice to have a couple of those things around where it's like, oh, I'm I'm bothered by a version of television entertainment that I don't even have a particular interest in. Because I don't want us to be too, you know, fractaled, ultimately. I'd like, some things to bring us <laughs> back to the fore.
3: Like, Johnny Carson used to be the, the great yes. equal. I, I'm sorry to bring it to Johnny. Please. But, like... You know, you'd go into work in the morning and everybody had watched the same celebrity guest the night before. And I think sometimes we miss that having that connective tissue.
2: No, that you would go to work and you would have to say, you know, to your boss, like, let's talk about animal expert Joan Embry for a little while. <laughs> Fuck yes.
3: I'm sorry. Yeah.
1: <laughs> let's go. Uh- I mean, monoculture was so much that in high school, I remember coming to lunch and everyone talking about the rerun of
2: Seinfeld that was on the previous
4: night. It was The Simpsons.
1: It's like we all watched that episode. Yeah, um, no, it wasn't just
2: that you were aware of old television. Everybody watched the same old television. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, we should get on with this episode, much as I am enjoying this conversation about things that belong specifically in 1987. Yes. And Diablo
1: isn't our only lovely guest this week. Lewis and I interview Common, who has a new book out. It's a book about mind, body, soul, health, etc. I know it sounds like we're sipping into a, like a new age thing, but Common is actually a really, really fun interview. And Lewis brings up a very funny story about seeing Common in the wild.
2: So... Make sure you listen to that yes this episode it. as well. It's pretty wild that on the Oscars episode we have two <laughs> Oscar winners here. Some would say it's too many. Um, <laughs> while you're here, would you like to argue why you should be on the show and not Common?
3: I don't know. I mean, Common's really cool.
2: I have to say. Yeah.
3: <laughs> I mean, bump me. <laughs> <laughs> wow, begging to be bumped. <laughs> yeah.
2: Rare strategy on a podcast. Yeah.
1: All right, we will be right back with more keeping. For news on historical award season wins, all the way to the WTS going on in the White House, Crooked's What A Day newsletter is a great way to get the daily
2: downloads on the important stories you need to know about. Subscribe to the What A Day newsletter now by visiting crooked.com slash newsletters.
1: Keep It continues our coverage of award season, and we have finally reached the big one. I sound like Fred Sanford uh, <laughs> talking about the big one. <laughs> More current references for our current listeners. <laughs> uh, Gen Z is just watching the show on YouTube and going, "Huh, mate." Right. Uh, anyway, the Oscar nominations were just dropped, and as we predicted, Air has been nominated in every category. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know what? Viola was really good in that movie. I don't mean to. Condi- she was. I don't mean to dismiss it entirely. No, she was. Yeah. But, However, um, yeah. she was better in Hunger Games. That is a cuckoo performance. Right. I keep forgetting Like someone like Viola Davis ends up in the Hunger Games anyway. That's a conversation for another day. Um, Oscar nominations, I would say, generally speaking, were like 90% down the line what we expected. And then a couple of strays occurred, one of which I predicted, <laughs> which is that Annette Bening got a Best Actress nomination for NIAID. My theory on this front is, first of all, I actually love Niaid and defend it religiously. I think she brings Butch gym teacher energy that we rarely see in the Oscars conversation, but everybody has had that gym teacher. Right. So I think people Mm -hmm. voted for that. But also, Jodie Foster was nominated for Niaid, Her first nomination since 1994 for Nell. I'm going to say this is a better nomination. And then now she holds the record... For the longest gap between acting nominations in the same category since the last time she was nominated for Supporting Actors was 1976 in Taxi Driver. Wow. Wow. 47 years. Um, I'm kind of psyched for the two of them. I thought they were like risky performances of people you kind of don't see in an inspirational movie. As I said, it's the rare movie that serves family entertainment and cunt.
3: I mean, it's a. I want to see it really badly, but it's been a tough sell in my house. Really, like I've said yeah. to my mm. my three sons every night, hey, should we watch Niad? And for some reason, they're just not psyched. What? Yeah. <laughs> do
2: they not understand the joy of swimming to Cuba and then I, literally I playing a bugle before I you know. do it? I'm
3: gonna have to wait until they go to bed because it definitely seems like my jam.
2: Yeah. Oh, like, please. Yeah. Did you weathered have a, Women. Yeah, weathered Women. Oh, my God. that could, It could have been called that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't think people would be watching it as much as they did if it were called Weathered Women. Weathered. Okay. Well, speak for yourself. Yeah. But. <laughs> did you have any particular favorite movies that were represented at the Oscars this year?
3: Um, so, uh, Past Lives. Past Lives. Mm. I am a little upset on Greta
2: Lee's behalf. I thought she uh, was fabulous in that movie.
3: I I agree. Um, and I think Celine Song should have been nominated for Best Director. But uh, mm. I, um, I lo- obviously I loved Barbie, big big Barbie head here. Yeah, I can't believe that Margot was snubbed.
2: Yes, I do think her performance was the heart of the movie, like the thing you actually love the most about the movie, even though you really like the scenic design and you know the supporting characters all have their fun moments, but she really had a gravitas that I did not expect from Barbie.
3: I, that and I just, I think it is sort of uh, paradoxically a really challenging role. It's like just to make you, having worked on that movie early in the right. development process, yeah. I, I feel like I specifically just from that experience understand how difficult it is to make Barbie, lovable, and she did it. So I was a little bit disappointed by that. And I think Greta should have been nominated for Best Director. But
2: I would say also the directing is maybe the second most impressive thing about the movie. Luckily, Margot did get a Best Picture nomination because she was a producer, producer on the movie. Yeah. Just like Emma Stone got a producing nomination for... For Poor uh, Things. More and of this, please. She's more of actresses the second, at the top. Yeah. She's the second woman... Um,
1: I saw a line to be nominated in best actress and um best uh picture as a producer for a film. So
2: would that be after uh Frances McDormand maybe?
1: Yeah, probably. Okay. Um uh, in- inclusion writer as it were. <laughs> uh Diablo, uh I had forgotten that you were sort of involved in you know the process of you know, it was Barbie, a long time a ago. Or, a long time ago. I is there any having seen the movie and being a Barbie head? Is there anything that's sort of like in the Barbie lore that you would have maybe been excited to throw into the movie that didn't make it in?
3: You know, this is such a good question, and I feel like. What what the thing that I loved about the movie is it, it completely, I mean, she got everything in there. Yeah. Like it was, so the Barbie-verse was so expansive. Like I remember specifically being like, I want there to be mermaid Barbies and indeed there were and it was like freaking Dua Lipa. <laughs> like it was <laughs> better than I ever could have dreamed. So like honestly, I wish I had like a great answer for this. Like I I think that the curation of the Barbie world in that movie was just immaculate and perfect. And I mean, they had Ellen in and I, She went deep.
4: Yeah. So yeah. it's like,
3: I, yeah, like, honestly, I, I think my vision for Barbie would have been much more limited.
2: <laughs> <laughs> your movie would have been worse, is your Just take. It's Barbie okay. sitting alone. Yeah. And it's
3: Charlie's, And she's <laughs> sad. nothing wrong with that. No.
2: Yeah. No. And she smoking. Ben Lewis would have loved her. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had my problems with the Barbie movie.
3: Oh, you did? I, I should know this.
2: Yeah. But no, uh, uh, another movie I wanted to talk about because I think people are obsessive about this script and it did get a screenplay nomination but nothing else is May December and I Mm. think I can't think of another movie in the past few years that has so I don't want to say divided people but there's like such a passionate camp I'll call them very online people who love this movie and basically find endless intricacies to dig into about it and then it seemed to just entirely fall on deaf ears to everybody else And I was wondering if you had a take on what people got out of May December and what they didn't
3: well, if if you're asking why, you know, May-December had a, a not that many nominations. I mean, I think it's because it's a film that insults the industry in a very clever way. Um, this idea of just being like a parasitic actor who's studying real people to try and, you know, play this role. I think it like I think it probably turned some voters off. <laughs> yeah, it but, is a
2: little bit like acting is full mm. of sociopaths. Exactly. Yeah. But like,
3: I loved it. Um, I just think, like you know, um, Mr. Todd. Why am I blanking on his last name? Oh, Haynes. Hey, Todd Haynes. Haynes. I think he is just um, d- divisive. I think some people just don't really grasp his tone or don't want to. I I love it.
2: Yeah. No, I I think also the people who love it really embrace the the, the shifting in tones. How sometimes it's a little bit funny, a little mysterious. It's always constantly, you're always a little unmoored. You're never positive how to feel. And I think the, I'll call them, I don't want to say normies, but maybe the average (laughs) Oscar voter wonders if that's a- Locals. Wonders if that's a flaw (laughs) or maybe unintentional when it is intentional. Like you're not supposed to feel- Entirely secure with where you are exactly. in the movie, you know. Yeah,
3: like the like. I feel like the the tonal inconsistency is a is a choice,
2: right? So. But like Charles Melton not getting in, oh, so upsetting. That
3: that's upsetting. He was incredible,
2: and also just a, yeah. a, a, a supporting performance. I can't compare to any other performance. Like the jitteriness, the 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 combination of like. Uh, uh, being naive, but also, like, having this huge heart, but also, like, having a little bit of wisdom. He just brought a lot to it that I thought was really special, and it's really strange that that wasn't recognized. Yeah. But then, you know, sort of the ending with him and then those two women is also
1: not just the insulting of Hollywood. I feel like it's probably a bit too ambiguous for um, the voting body when you sort of have a film with darker themes, as it were. You know, you sort of have to take people by the hand, and lead them there. And it's interesting that Todd Haynes, I do find him sort of divisive among voters and um, sort of industry people, if only because I feel like the films of his that people really love are where he is sort of playing within Hollywood. You think of Far From Heaven, you know, he is basically giving you cert, you know, you give Carol, which is sort of this throwback vibe. I feel like they like him when he's playing dress-up a bit more and not when he's sort of yeah. peeling things away.
2: And I think uh, additionally, I, I want to say binge TV has sort of cemented in people's mind the idea that something dramatic has to always happen. I feel like there's a big mm-hmm. contingent of people who watch a movie like May, December, and say nothing happened other than she ends up sleeping with... uh, uh Natalie Portman ends up sleeping with Charles Melton... Because that's how like episodic TV is sort of structured. You're waiting for big events to occur when that's not really what the movie is about. In fact, it's about how she goes to like study these people's lives and specifically gets nothing germane out of it, and then goes back to make a movie that is not benefited by what she did. You know, it's about the absence of things occurring, really. Yeah. You know,
3: that's a kind of a thorn in my side as a writer because I <laughs> like movies that are mood pieces. Yeah. And are mm-hmm. about you know conversations and characters and it's it is tough to compete with you know some of the really uh the pacing and the plot twists of the the bingeable tv that everybody watches now right you know it's just not really what i do
2: yeah And it's also just like i, I guess plot happenings we've seen them all before. Like, I don't know that I need to see the same types again and again. You know what I mean? That's not really what's thrilling to me about a movie.
3: And me neither, but I also know that I'm not like the typical audience member based on what gets asses in the seats these days. So, well,
2: broken response. I'm <laughs> seeing you at your absolute <laughs> lowest. I
3: didn't mean it. Like, I guess that sounded like a real douchebag. No, it did not. I didn't not. mean it that way. I just like the, the stuff I get really excited to see is rarely like a smash hit. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like,
2: no, I I continue to be grateful for things like White Lotus, which I feel like play yes. a little bit more with like small moments, and not everything leads to a murder, or you know, or what led to a murder is utterly bizarre. Or, yeah. You know. So, uh, that's my one version of bingeable TV I can get into. I feel like there's there's still
1: this conversation to be had about um, streaming in films and sort of like a window when something is in theaters versus when it is in. Uh, at home for people to watch because I feel like largely May, December also suffered from a really good, it had a really good word of mouth when it was in theaters. People were going to see it. People were buzzing about it. People were saying that they liked it. And then when it went home, it really got hit by the whole, is this just like the Mary Kay Latorno conversation? And then people trying to figure out what is this, etc. cetera. That conversation happened over one weekend. It was really big. And then it died down, and there wasn't really a lot of conversation around the movie after that. And I feel like we're still in this place of figuring out how to keep people talking about something throughout the year. I mean, we've even noticed that most streaming networks, right, speaking of TV, have gone back to the releasing each week model Mm -hmm. instead of dropping it all at once. And it's how do we figure out how that works with movies, especially a movie that you need people to keep talking about all the way through award season. Or I feel like even just the whole sense of what award season is to me is these films are nominated or the people are getting buzzed. And it's like, Ooh, how do I get to the theater to see this? You know, how do I like talk about it with people? And when it's on TV at home already, you'll just sort of put it on. And especially you saying Todd Haynes does more vibe movies uh, especially like Safe, you know, a movie where nothing really, really happens, but there's so much happening. Um, that's May, December sort of an easy film for people to watch, but also be on their phone and not missing plot twists or paying
2: attention to plot twists. It's as if you're saying movies themselves are not eventized anymore. So the plot of the movie's have to have events in them. You know what I mean? Like, draw me to the TV. Make me pay attention, you know?
3: Well, Mm -hmm. I've noticed that, you know, with the whole salt burn phenomenon, it interests me because people are still talking about that movie. That dialogue has been going on for weeks on social media. Mm -hmm. And it's like, in May, December, as you said, it felt like that was just kind of a moment where people were discussing it. And I'm like, I guess maybe just the, you need the... Come in the bathtub factor, as we say. And <laughs> the, the <parlous>
1: <laughs> Yeah. But there were also none for Glen Coco and Saltburn either.
2: So did yeah. it work? That right. Interesting situation <laughs> maybe people just got worn out by that conversation or something. But that's said- Honestly, c- yeah. I'd
3: rather have a Saltburn level I'd rather have my film be a like that girl, like Saltburn mm-hmm. than get the Nom. Yes. Personally. Of course.
2: And also I'm sure it was like on the cusp in a number of categories. That felt like something yeah. that was sixth in a number of things too. So I'm I'm sure in another universe it would have happened for it. Ira, did you have other favorite nominations uh this go-around? Well, I mean, you know that I
1: loved Poor Things is my favorite film of the year. Um I'm like I'm a Yorgos head. So
2: mm-hmm. anything he does, I'm always going to be. Attracted to. Emma Stone in that movie, it must be said, it reminds me a little bit of, to bring up old Oscars, have you ever seen the movie Born Yesterday, where Judy Holliday plays, it's like a building's roman, where she is this seemingly dim-witted ditz who kind of comes into her own and realizes her husband is this boar, and... She just has marvelous comic timing. Uh, to compare it to another Oscar-winning performance, if you remember Mira Sorvino in *Mighty Aphrodite*, she picks this Frank Ozzy Miss Piggy voice, but in that tone, she does a lot of work. So you're, it's it's a it's a subversive performance as well as a really engaging one. Emma Stone, I think, is in kind of uh, conversation with those two performances. I don't know if you've seen porn I things. have to see it. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's on
3: my list.
2: And I thought I hated it at first because I said she seemed to be doing what I would call a prestige Borat impression. But then the whole point of the movie is she <laughs> gains intelligence and uh, curiosity and those thoughts become conversations which become giant set pieces, a lot going on. It feels like you're in a rolled doll universe with all the scenic design. Scenically, it's gorgeous, and yeah. I feel—I
1: feel like it's also—it's um, mo- his most sentimental film. Mm-hmm. If you've watched Yorgos's film, you know where you have the lobster, where you have the favorite, which is very funny, but it is just sort of a—it's a hateful, dark sort yeah. of film. <laughs> and movie at the end, uh, is a downer. Yes. I love the end. Yes, of that movie. yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. And, and killing of a sacred deer is just sort of like—I mean, help me. I want yeah. to shoot myself after that film. <laughs> yeah. Um. So another Barry film. Uh, God, I love Barry. I mean, not not to get back on the salt bur- thing, I do think it's very interesting um, that, you know, not to use this word that I want the internet to get rid of, the whole this whole baby girl thing, mm-hmm. you know, but <laughs> the Jacob Elordi, the Barry Yogan's, like, like it's interesting that the, the hot boys who were on everyone's uh, lips this year, uh, everyone was talking about... Uh, throughout the entire year and the movies that they were in weren't a part of ultimately the awards conversation at the end. Like they didn't get these nominations, but I do think it's better as a writer. uh, What Diablo was saying, you know, I would rather my film has um, Jacob Elordi, like the star of the year in it, being on SNL, referencing my film. People are talking about it online because that is going to live on beyond a ceremony uh, where, only one person nominated is going to get I mean, the award.
3: I can t- I can tell you from experience, like having having clout is so much cooler than having, and having money is so much cooler than Jennifer's having an Oscar that just sits there. It doesn't do anything. It's just yeah. in my house.
2: I'm pitching on things uh, it should be able to
1: do yeah. in a Barbie way. <laughs>
3: yeah. Oh, my God. Kung Fu You're grip, wrong.
1: et cetera. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean Jennifer's body is worth so much more for that for you. I would I imagine. I mean it's you know? funny like people how... are constantly talking about that movie.
3: They do. They talk to people talk to me about Jennifer's body all the time. Much more so than they ever talk about Juno. So it's like I guess that was a not that was an unexpected plot twist in my life.
2: <laughs> Speaking of these like yeah. kind of new stars that are on everybody's lips like Barry Keoghan, Jacob Already. Is there any particular star right now who I feel like you watch somebody and think, "I would love to see them do this unusual thing." Is there anybody who's like kind of on your mind right now in terms of new people who have maybe an untapped part of their acting they could get into?
3: I see. The problem is you're asking me about new people, mm. and you know how my brain works.
2: Mm-hmm. Like, oh no! I mean, like, I you mean, we're, yes.
3: know, my fantasy is to put David Spade in a dark, gritty drama.
2: That's okay. Great.
3: <laughs> I'm Why not, not? I'm going to do it, Ira. I've tried. <laughs> I would
1: watch it. I would
2: be
3: first in I, but line. Like, but by the way, he is
2: kind of gritty. When the
1: the comedy,
3: he has it. Yeah. I'm telling you. Just hell, let me. Somebody let me. But in terms of like young people, like, like sure, I'd love to see the you know the D'Amelios play British.
4: <laughs> like, why not? <laughs> yeah.
3: I'm sorry. I'm sure that's a TikTok. I'm sure that's a TikTok. I'm just like I don't know what to say.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, listen, Charles Melton didn't secure that nomination um, today, but I will say that much like the WB shows that you know we sort of grew up with, where all those people became stars, you know, Riverdale, as insane as it was, has like a lot of really great actors on it who are circling big moments I mean you have Cole in Lisa Frankenstein and I think Cole is such an amazing actor and then there's Lily Reinhart who was great in Hustlers uh and so like this this cast is full of people who are great and I think that the next few years are going to we're going to see a lot of them popping up in things and people are always going to be doing that oh my god they were in Riverdale
3: well, Lord knows they've been ready. I mean, they were in like what, like 6-season contracts or something. Like the yeah. the that uh the CW really locks people down. So
2: What was it like working with Cole Sprouse and getting this performance out of him?
3: First of all, Zelda got the performance out of him and he conjured the performance. I'm just I'm just a writer. Like, yeah. I just sit there with the twinkie. Okay? <laughs> but like um Cole was like Cole was, this was not something where we had to, like, court Cole. He wanted to do it so badly. Like, he pursued this role. He was like, I, this is, I I have always wanted to do something like this. He's like, I will go to mime school. I will go to clown classes. I mean, he did these things. And he's incredible in the movie. And I was just, I I was just way to diminish his crap. I know, I saw.
2: Um, Good for you. I was looking the other way. (laughs)
3: Like, um I what was it like working with him? I mean, I was very intimidated by him because he's super cool and he's like really intelligent mm. and like he's like a photographer and like he's just like he's such a vibe and he's also, you know, sitting on set c- clothed in a way that was just sort of directly pulled out of my fantasies. <laughs> and I'm just like <laughs> okay, like it's it was uh it was amazing. I mean, the, the whole mm-hmm. experience, I know people always come on here and I'm like, I just love making the movie and they're like totally full of shit. <laughs> like, I, I'm not like a super media trained person and I can say like honestly that it, it was, the, everyone in the movie was so cool and great. So I was just like, I'm going to enjoy this.
1: Yeah. Having met Cole before, I, he has that, I bring up like, it's interesting, it was on Riverdale, you know, with like Luke Perry was on that because oh. I just feel like there are just... You see those certain younger actors who just sort of have this quality and it's like you it throws you back to when you were in high school and you're like, I'm going to become a writer because that's what I'm good at. And then you just see this like magnetic person who is like, like you said, photographer. And when he's smoking, it looks cool. And like, you know, the haircut and like, it's just like this is this is a star, you know, um, Christian Slater in Heathers, you know, at all times. Uh, Just very alluring. Um, so I think Cole is great.
3: I'm also just completely, I, I just continue to be intrigued by people who grow up in the industry. Like shortly after mm-hmm. we wrapped on the movie, I came home and one of my kids was watching like Big Daddy and I see the little kid walk. And I was like, is that Cole? And I was like, <laughs> this is so weird. Like, I right. just forgot that like, like that's him, right? Mm-hmm. I think yes, that's it is. him. I was just like, oh, he was, he's yeah. like, he was like born doing this. And Zelda like well, I was a sweet life fan. Sex, and it's just, you know. Lewis and I are from the same (laughs) shithole. So it's just like, for me, the idea of growing up in like Hollywood is like, wow, like you are, you are built different.
2: No, I constantly think Los Angeles is like, like you've just arrived at Cecil B. DeMille town. Like it's constantly like cloud of glamour for me, even while living here. I literally,
3: driving down the 101 to come here this morning, listen, to party in the USA. Like that's where I'm still at. That's where I'm still
4: at.
1: (laughs) Uh, I also want to commend a couple of um, nominations that I thought were great. Um, Sterling K. Brown um, for American Fiction. Uh, He's playing a crazy cokehead gay character in this film. Uh, But I think Sterling is a really great actor. And in the best actor category,
2: Coleman Domingo. I'm, I love him.
1: I don't think uh, we brought all, up that movie yet. The,
2: yeah, now. Rustin, which is about the uh, uh, pioneering civil rights uh, flamboyant man, uh, Bayard Rustin in the 60s. Every moment of it, it, it's just that one of those kind of addicting. I mean, I guess I would compare it to uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman as Capote, where it's like, first of all, it's the tone of voice chosen that you're immediately locked mm-hmm. into. And then secondly, it's just believing, believing that he could be both that flamboyant and that important to cog in the system. You saw how he engrossed everybody Mm -hmm. around him, even though he inhabits a character that we don't associate uh, with being, like, out in the 60s, like, being around. I actually sort of think about um, Carol, uh, Cate Blanchard in that movie, it's like, what would, like, a a highfalutin lesbian be up to during that time? But, like, you believe her (laughs) in that. It's like, yeah, she would have that relationship with her husband or that relationship with the girl she's interested in. Anyway, um, he is awesome. And also the first best actor who is out as a gay man mm-hmm. since Ian McKellen, who was who up for Gods and Monsters. And by the way, that's a haunting performance, yes. if you haven't seen that recently, where he plays James Webb. Well. And playing a gay character. Yes. As
1: well, you know? So, I mean, it's it's giving us the milk moment, but, you know,
2: with an actual gay person. Which, by the it, way, and the- it's still remarkable that Jodie Foster is uh, nominated for playing an out character as well. Uh, I don't you know, know if I would have said like 15 years ago that was doable. So that's exciting. Not after
1: that speech. Right. Oh my God, the Golden uh, <laughs> Globes. I'm still, I'm still parsing it. Yeah. I mean, listen, Dave Vine or Danielle are going to win that Best uh, Supporting Actress. But wow, would it be great to have another out there Jodie Foster speech at an awards show. That would be fabulous. Uh, <laughs> I do also want to say Jeffrey Wright. For American Fiction, it's it feels like a long overdue nomination for Jeffrey Wright, who's just sort of this amazing fucking actor, you know, who's up in everything. Timor Hoppen before like someone who's in everything. But I was looking back at his films too, and I'm like, sure, he's done like Belize and Angels in America, but that was television. Uh, He was really great on Westworld. That's also TV, and he just really hasn't had. He's been in everything. But he hasn't really been given the caliber of roles that you would think would get him in front of the Oscar voting body. Constantly, the only one I can really think of was W, a movie that I hated. Right, but Imagine he's greatest Colin Powell in it.
2: Yeah, no. Uh, uh, again, yeah, he's in every movie, but nothing that like, jumps out as a definitive movie performance. Like, if, if I'm looking mm. at his IMDb, I know the first thing I'm thinking of is Angels in America or Westworld, for example. Mm-hmm. Um know that is a, a fab nomination. Interesting movie. It sort of wavers between this uh, writer's emotional life and then the process he has of putting a book together that actually gets in front of the world. And I felt like the satire part of the movie was a little obvious for me, but the emotional part of the film I thought was really good. I love
1: seeing Erica Alexander again because i a big living single fan. Mm. I mean, I'm friends with Court, and so I enjoyed seeing American fiction. I There's a book that is based on which I thought was a bit more powerful to me, but also the book came out 20 years ago, you know? Uh, And that's always going to be the problem when you're adapting something that's particularly about race and sort of the industry, even if it's the book industry, things don't change, but there's Mm -hmm. also micro things that change that maybe makes it feel a little bit like the satire probably wasn't hitting enough for you, but it would have hit if you had, you know, sort of read it when it came out.
2: I will tie up this Oscars conversation by asking Brooke, since you are an Oscars winner, did you have a definitive moment watching the Oscars growing up that sticks out to you as like the most resonant?
3: So I was, I was seated and, and I watched the Rob Lowe, uh, the 1990 infamous, ceremony, the yes. The infamous Rob Lowe mm. and Snow White performance. I did, I, I remember seeing that. That is weirdly a core memory. Like, because I think I knew that it was ridiculous even then. But um, what other, like...
2: I just want to say, by the way, if you'd seen that live, I mean, I'm sure that's an unforgettable experience because if people don't know this at home, there was an opening of the Oscars one year. I love it was... that.
3: I just assumed everyone knows what I'm right. talking about. Sorry. No.
2: <laughs> it was a very stodgy ceremony. It's the one where famously Driving Miss Daisy triumphed and Do the Right Thing got very little. But anyway, nonsensically... This oh, ceremony begins with Snow White and Rob Lowe sort of dancing together, and a, a, a bunch of other things occur. But it feels very pulling ideas out of thin air. The entire audience is perplexed and not reacting at all. It's like the it's like the biggest the deadest air in the history of television.
3: It's really hard to watch. Yeah. It's a hard watch and I watch it probably once a year. (laughs) But, um, (laughs) it's, uh, and I remember, I remember Halle Berry winning for Monsters Ball. Yes. That was, that was really amazing. In the Elisab. Powerful. Yes, Yes, in the Elisab. And, um, remember Nicole Kidman's chartreuse column gown that she wore that one year? She was with Tom at the time. That was an iconic dress. I'm just talking about dresses. But like, yeah, I mean, I, I watched the Oscars every year. I was, like, really into it.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. And and my follow-up question is, I don't think I know this about you. After you won your Oscar, what did you do that night? Did you, like, go out to parties, or did you do the Hillary Swank Astro Burger route, or what did you do?
3: No, I, I really, so my family had come into town for it, so mm-hmm. um, they weren't at the ceremony, but my, like, immediate objective after I won was I wanted to get to my parents immediately. I just wanted to see my family. And at the time, people were like, what are you doing? Like, you have to go to Madonna's house. You have to go to the governor's ball. Like, that's what you do. Like, you're only going to get one chance in your life to do this. And I was like, I don't fucking care. Like, I just needed like a normalcy. So Mm. me and my parents and my brother and a couple of my friends just hung out at like a hotel pool all night.
2: What could be better?
3: Yeah. It was really fun, Mm. actually.
2: Also, there are governor balls size things all the time. Anyway, well, one thing about those tables, you did end up at
1: Madonna's house. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh,
3: that's true. You did. <laughs> that was the thing. I was like, look, Madonna and I, our time will come. Okay? Like, I I, I insist on a one-on-one, all summer long encounter with Madonna as opposed to just a party.
2: If but, people don't know what mm-hmm. we're referring to, Brooke at a time was uh, co-writing Madonna's now canceled biopic. I, I with think her. it is. Yeah, I think I, I don't I think know sp- where it is
3: in the process, and I I wish the project all the great vibes in the world, and I'm personally very much want to see a Madonna movie. No, but I just don't know where it's at.
2: Let's be clear, you are an A one Madonna fan. Like, oh in yeah. In all the years I've known you, I mean, I don't, I I don't know that I've ever met someone whose knowledge is as comprehensive as mine. Like, yeah. you are clearly no. Like I
3: I I I love Madonna. Do you so, have
2: one core memory from the experience of working with her that you would like to share?
3: I mean. Uh, you know, she um, she smells really, really good, which I know is, I feel like that's a cliche they put in, like, every Vanity Fair profile where they, <laughs> right they always use the word luminous and they always talk about how people smell. Mm-hmm. Um, but Madonna smells amazing. And I think um, just realizing that her work ethic is not a myth, it's not this thing that's been created around her, like... I kept waiting for her to, like, humanize herself, and it was like, no, you're like, she's she's actually that driven. She's actually... Like, I realized, like, I really am a loser. Like, there are people <laughs> in life who are... You know, almost like extraterrestrial, and how special they are, and like she is one of them.
2: No, like the Naiad-born champion people. Like, yeah, and you know. I was
3: like, oh, I'm like bacteria. <laughs> like it was like, and I mean this, and like it was an honor. It was an honor to realize how how that I'm scum, right?
2: <laughs> well, it's, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, that it wasn't the opposite. I know? was just
3: like, wow. Like it, I was right to worship you all these years.
2: Yeah. No, I mean she. She's she's <laughs> like, she, she's, she's she clearly she's has an, mother, <laughs> as they
3: say. Like she right. really is. And
2: and and I assume that's even terrifying in a certain way. Like how are people capable of working this hard?
3: I know. Like it was like, what do you do in your free time? What free, What is free time? You know, like that kind right. of. Then I'm just like, oh my god.
2: No, Barbara Streisand just did an interview with Stephen Colbert talking about, of course, her giant memoir, and she goes, "I'd like to have more fun now. I haven't had much fun in my life. Yeah, think about that." I know.
3: What? Whereas I feel like I've had a really, like, shall we say, fun, focused life. Yeah. And, you know, maybe that hasn't <laughs> been, maybe, I don't know if the outcome has been ideal, but.
2: You're here now. And the, oh, so yeah, t- what am
3: I saying? Yeah. Here it I'm all keeping. led me to here, to this, to this chair today. So <laughs> no regrets.
1: <laughs> uh, all right. We will be right back with our interview with Common. An Oscar winner. Uh of course Lewis brings up the Oscars when we talk to Kama. So we will be right back. Keep it is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis. Yes. When you see footprints in the sand. Our guest today is a paragon of peace and love and positivity. He's more than a multi-hyphenate an award-winning musician, songwriter, as well as actor, producer, activist, and best-selling author. He's now back with his newest book, And Then We Rise, A Guide to Loving and Taking Care of Self. We could go on listing his accolades and honors, but why don't I just say welcome to Keep It
5: Common. Peace, what's going on? Thank you for having me on. I'm excited to be here with you guys. on keep it. And I, I love that intro. What Did you say para, Paragon? What, what, paragon. What you a Paragon said? of peace, I, love, I, and positivity. Oh, well, that, was, that, was, that was dope. I, I wish I said that in a rhyme before. So.
2: <laughs> <laughs> also, Paragon of peace is correct because you literally greeted us coming on the Zoom with peace. How long have you been doing that? That's such a good, I'm going to call that a cool tactic because it sets a tone when you uh, are introduced to people.
5: Yeah, um, I've been doing it, I think, since the mid-90s. Um, and, you know, hip-hop actually kind of brought me to that word because early on, some of the artists that I loved, they were always would say peace in their raps, whether it was from Eric B and Rakim or Brand Nubian. And, and ironically, my father, you know, who I didn't grow up with, but he would always say when we got off the phone, keep the peace. So it was kind of something that was revolving around me and 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 I decided that that's what I how I wanted to greet people and um you know words are powerful so I'm glad Lewis I'm glad you like picked up on that cuz that's what I'm about
1: <laughs> uh I want to talk about your book uh and then we rise it's so interesting to me that you know you at this point in your life you wanted to make a Basically, your version of like a self-help book, but about taking care of, you know, the mind, the body, um, the soul, you know. So what led you to wanting to create this book? Was it a project of yours? Were people just constantly asking you about these things in your personal life? And you were like, I'm just going to write y'all a
5: book and send it to you. <laughs> yeah, Ira, you just you just summed it up. <laughs> so many people would ask me different things like, okay, well, why are you why are you eating those foods? Or like, what are you doing for your skin? Or like, why do you seem happy? Or like, I even had a doctor, a friend of mine who was a doctor during the pandemic call me and asked me, what should I take like to keep myself like well? And I was like, wow. Um, I realized that I've been blessed and um, experienced a lot of different things, had access to to different things that, that revolve around health and wellness, whether it was the trainer's, that I was able to work with, the therapists that I've been able to work with. Um, also the nutritionists and integrative medicines and the chefs. And I was like, I wanted to share this information with others. This book is really not about me. Uh, it's about the reader. it's about the us um, and just us empowering ourselves. And I just felt like I owe it to, to people. I owe it to people because I've had the opportunity and blessings to have that. And I, and I want us to have joy and, and happiness and and be well, li- feeling like wait we can live, I can live in my eighties and still feel like moving around. I could dance, you know. I just I, I just want to put that out there in the world, and I think this book is an easy way to get to that.
2: Normally, when somebody has like conquered as many creative avenues, someone like you, I would I would still assume that you have creative blockades or writers, like, what we would call writer's block, generally speaking, but. Does someone like you who literally is so great at freestyle rapping as in you can just do art off the top of your head basically at a moment's notice do you have those kind of blocks and what do you do to get over them
5: Yes, that's a great question I do have those blocks um and let me make sure I'm clear on something when I said this book is easy I mean it's an easy read <laughs> but but it's not <laughs> it does just take steps to get to where we need to get to and I, and that path is not always easy but that's what life is for us and that practice means a lot now to answer your question though lewis um i do come across moments where i'm like stuck writing like i could sit down for four hours and not really come up with anything that i like you know i can say some words i can freestyle something but come up with something that because in writing for me it has to resonate with my soul like i gotta feel like oh this is my soul and i bounce my ideas off of people that i'm close to and i work with and be like, what do you think of this? But it still has to come back to what I feel in my heart and soul. Cause that's what creativity to me is. It's a divine expression. So I do come across those things. What I do is I'll like, I'll I'll work at it and, and work through it, but then if I don't feel it like really resonating, I'll step away. I might read something that's really like just up on a high level, something that's expressive, something that's like, like great poetry. I've been reading Audre Lorde lately. And, like, I'm like, it breaks me out of, like, what the box of writing should be because poetry is so free. So I'll read great poets. I might go watch basketball, do something to get me away from it. And when I come back, I'm usually inspired. So, yeah.
1: Well, I mean, speaking of great poets, there was a very funny, to me, passage in your book uh, where you talk about... Um, meeting with Maya Angelou, and then getting her um, to record the intro for The Dreamer, The Believer. uh, And then she heard the album. And then she was like, well, why are you saying nigga on this album? Can you take that off? (laughs) Uh, So you told me about meeting Maya, and then like, sort of like, just the feeling it was of like her calling you back and finding out that like, she wasn't happy, like with how the album had turned out in that way. And was that something that you felt like? because you were at that age and in that space you were able to meet her where she wanted to be and reprint the album like do you think like earlier in your career like you might have even cared
5: yeah well first of all like Maya Angelou has been one of the greatest inspirations in my life like she was one of the first writers i remember just loving Mm -hmm. and that's why hence you have the title and then we rise because it's based off of her poem still i rise um but To get to meet her, like to go from being in in grammar school, elementary school, fifth grade, reading her poetry to fast forward like 30 years later, sitting in her front room, talking to her about life. And she she barely knew who I was, but just was welcoming her because her grandson knew who I was. And and so she allowed me in, in to meet with her. But we became good friends in. Within that conversation, we knew it was a soul connection, and man, I really got cool with it. And, and for her, you know, for me, it was like I I'm, I got My Angelou on my album. Mm-hmm. How many people can say that? You know, you always want to come with something really fresh. I got My Angelou on my album, so for her to to not be happy with me using the word nigga, um, I was I was sad. I was like, man. I mean, I understood, and I was kind of sad with myself, like, dang. I didn't even think about that. Like, I got this person that's this one of the icons and has done so much for, for humanity. And that's not something that connects with who she is. I should have thought about that. When she corrected me, I was able to accept it as an elder, you know, as she being an elder, someone who I hold on a high pedestal. and it made me think about when I when I used the word and, and those things. And I still use the word, you know, as part of the way I grew up. So I didn't detour from who I was but at the same token in that space it didn't need to be used because the elder said don't use it and the answer I I would have even at a young age even as a young Chicago 19 year old little knucklehead I still would have Dr. Myangelo said don't use that word I would have listened the same (laughs) way when my mother told me don't do this I didn't do it you know like I mean, some things she didn't know what I was doing, so she didn't tell me. But if I got corrected by an elder, I'm going to respect the elder, you know?
2: One thing I totally cannot guess about you based on your filmography. I mean, first of all, the fact that you even crossed into acting is just a completely different skill set from being a rapper or writer. So whenever people actually make that transition, I'm like, how is that even possible, for one thing? But secondly, what are the acting roles that came easiest to you and what comes hardest because it just seems like a skill set that generally fits you like a glove
5: oh thank you so much um the some of the easier characters for me the was my the first character i played um in in this movie smoking aces called sir ivy you know i was oh thank you thank you um though i was very like you know new to it and nervous I think the preparation and just the the, the passion and, and the excitement—it just—it became easy after a minute. I think our director Joe Conahan set an environment that made it that made it easy. To be honest, you know, like especially once I was able to get out of my head, um, this character that I'm playing now in Silo, um, Sims—he he's someone who I really—it feels easy like to connect to him because. It's a lot going on with him, and I and I love when I get to show the complexities of people. Um, one of the characters that were m- most difficult, I played a character in a movie called Run All Night. He was like this psychotic dark dude. You know, I saved off all my hair, and I just was trying to live in that character. And the person, the chef, who I was working with at the time, said she used to come to the apartment and be like, "I don't even want to talk to him because I was, you know, <laughs> just like I was I was living a little crazy just." Because it's such a you gotta go there to get to that character and, and that character was difficult for me. Um and and, and I gotta say, you know, a, a character I played on Hell on Wheels, um, his name was Elam, and it was in the eighteen hundreds. It became it was difficult, but then I really connected with him. So sometimes you go from like, Wow, this is really challenging to being like, Oh man, I'm living in it and it's alive. So I, I hope that all my characters will Will eventually become alive, and you just see that person.
1: Mm-hmm. I feel, um, I feel like you've done so many roles, but a lot of them, you know, are like you said, like a smoking aces or like a John Wick. Uh, but do you find that you get recognized the most from those kinds of roles, or do you still have people coming up to you talking about like just right? Because I feel like you haven't done that many Rob Cons, but I watched that movie. Often, I mean, I love a Queen Latifah rom com, that or like Last Holiday, and I'm always like, it's right. fun seeing you in that role. And so, is that something that you wish that you had been able to do more of after that film?
5: Well, I first of all, I'm with you. I enjoy, I love, I enjoy Latifah in rom coms, whether um it was whether it was Last Holiday or, or what was the film she did with Steve Martin, Um Bring It On the it? House. Bring down the uh-huh. house, yes. Mm-hmm. Bring it down the house. Like I actually love I really like that movie. But that being said, um, like I get recognized for for John Wick. Like hands down, that's probably the most I get recognized. It's like I I've, I've been in people's Ubers and the dude like wait I know you from somewhere wait I know you and he's looking in his rearview mirror and then he's by the time the end of the ride he's like wait you and John Wick you and John Wick you that dude from John Wick so. I get recognized for that almost more than any, like the toughest security guard, they could be working, doing security for Taylor Swift. And he'll when they get a, a moment, they will be like, Hey, I like you and John Wick. And I'll be like, wow, <laughs> you, you, know. you know, usually they don't even say anything to, you. you know, they, they focus. So John Wick, hands down, just right might be the second thing I'm most recognized for, or at least the thing that people feel most, um, connected to or you know have a real affinity to is like and I think that really did connected for a lot of black women um you know of different shapes and just it just really brought the love and it wasn't about like okay this is the the archetype of what beauty is supposed to be no this woman right here Queen Latifah is is beauty personified just the like, 100 beauty and and I think that movie did that for a lot of women who are, you know, may not be what America labels as typical beauty.
2: Um, uh, obviously, in in this book, it's established that you basically your values are in the right place, and you have a system in place to um, make your life basically as good as satisfying as you want it to be. That said, you have also won a ton of awards and are in fact three fourths of the way to an EGOT. And I'm wondering. Somebody who seems to be to actually value like the right things in life, how much do awards actually matter to you or do they matter? Because for as an outsider, I, like they're all I want. You know what I mean I'm just saying like that speaks to me an award.
5: <laughs> well listen, <laughs> Lewis, you and I speak some of the same language. I I appreciate awards. I value them. I'm not one that's going to sit here and be like, "Nah, man, well if you know, I'm just I am doing it for the art. I do it for the love. That's the first thing. That's, you know, I'ma do it. it. The work that I do is some some of it is not even, you, you you can't you can't be awarded. But the work that I do that is eligible for awards, yes, I I love like when people say, you know, especially because those awards are usually coming from people voting that they really watch films. They part of the film community. They are really musicians. They part of the film. Like to be able to like put in that your heart and soul into something and to be recognized from that collective and, and that part of um aspect of of culture. Man, that's a that's a beautiful thing. And 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 I feel grateful when people are like yo students won Oscars and like that's something that I. Like used to watch, I remember watching award shows and that was like, I wanted to be there. Like I wanted to be there. So yes, I, I appreciate them. I value them. I don't, I don't take them for granted. I don't like, but I, I put the art first, but then, and, and getting it to reach the people and and, and it impacting them. But the award is, is another step that I always am grateful for. And, and, and I do put intention towards those 2
1: mm-hmm. Um, you've collaborated with a lot of artists over the years. Um, a lot of my favorite artists as well. Um, but I want to ask about um one of my favorite songs is um Keep It Down by Khalees, which samples yours, uh Used to Love Her. And I'm just wondering if um if there's any, you know, hip hop uses a lot of sampling, obviously, and you've used samples in your own work, but have there been any artists who've maybe like used your work um and sampled it that like you really appreciate it um and you felt like sort of took that your own music to a different place?
5: Well, I mean it was more artists that I felt like I didn't know that they would sample it or you know, like I Usher and sampled something from me for I used to, uh from I Used to Lover, which I was like, wow, this is, you know, like you don't know what artists know you even or even pay attention to your music so for when that clearance came through like <laughs> hey usher usher sampled you i'm like wow that's that's clear whatever it's good <laughs> he's good like i appreciated that um and when jay-z used some of my lyrics like on on the album he and beyonce did you know he he, he used um y'all know how i met her we broke up and got back together you know it was and then he used, I think I met this, no, he not I met this girl, he used something else. And for 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 me, it was like, wow, Jay-Z is saying something that I said, like this is, you know, you just don't know who might be affected by your music. It's you know, especially you just, yeah, you just don't know. So I was grateful for for those artists like really like you utilizing work that I did.
2: No, this is a bizarre question, and I guarantee I will never ask it to anybody else again, but in the year of 2009, I happened to be miniature golfing on my birthday, and I saw you miniature golfing with Serena Williams. Now, watching this, I I just glanced for a second. I just thought, what if Serena Williams is bad at miniature golf? I was just wondering. And then like if you can play if you play her, do you feel obligated to do worse than her? I just want to know the etiquette in that situation and if she was good at miniature golf. Crazy question.
5: Okay. Oh, wait. Well, w- what city were we? It in? was I it, uh uh Sherman Oaks. Okay, okay, okay. So I believe from what I remember, Serena was really okay. good at miniature golf. She was really good, but I was better. Just, I was better. And, and and I, Louis, I have no obligation to let anyone win anything. I won't let my daughter win. I beat my mother in bowling. My, my mother's seventy nine. I beat her in bowling and told her to get better. I, I am competitive, so no, Serena didn't win. And I will never let anybody win. I, <laughs> I, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to fight to the end to win. <laughs>
2: Turns out you and I have everything in common. That is exactly how I treat my family and friends. Good. Yes. Well, you're both from <laughs> Chicago <laughs> exactly. too. So right. Yeah. Mini golfing yeah. on these streets.
5: There yes, right. We yeah. It is. <laughs> we landed on the main streets of Chicago. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I want to lastly ask, too, um, you wrote this book, you know, because people were asking you for advice, um, etc. In your whole career, I would guess, you know, um, what's someone who you've been shocked by? Maybe someone not in your immediate sort of like orbit of like um, hip hop or like someone um, that you would had a prior sort of relationship with. Is there like a very interesting or sh- surprising person of someone who sort of like reached out to you and asked you for advice? Or you were just sort of like, well, why is this person asking me? Um, either just because it was surprising because you didn't know they even really knew you, or it's someone who was like, Why is someone at this level asking me for advice? I would say
5: prince. And, mm. But I don't I don't feel that I don't feel that he was asking so much for advice, but he was like, testing my wits like he was like okay yeah when we, we were talking about the song the light and he was like yo a lot of these songs in major chords are really working and I was sitting there like wow my music theory is not on a level of Prince so I didn't even know the light was in a major chord but <laughs> I'm trying to go with him because I'm like I don't want him to know that that that, that I don't have I, well he obviously know I don't have what he has but I want him to think of me as like okay this dude is. He got something, and we 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 continued the conversation. He eventually um, invited me to to perform in his birthday. Um, with I performed with the Time, the group of mm. Time, and, and Erica Badu, and this is Alicia Keys was actually there. She wasn't even out yet; she was just there. And I was like, "Who is this girl with the braids?" But it was Alicia Keys. Um, and he eventually would talk to me about different things that you know when somebody is. They're, they're talking to you and you're not giving them advice, but they're seeing, getting your taste level and kind of getting a, a, a little gauge on like, okay, what is fresh in this way or what is fresh in that way? Like really, they value your opinion is what I'm saying. So that was really, for me, like shocking and, and inspiring. And, and I was geeked that Prince would even sit down and have a conversation with me. So that's someone who I feel did that. Two
2: quick things before we let you go. One, I think Prince is probably the most intimidating celebrity who ever lived, so that's a pretty amazing story, one. Two, could people just appreciate the music of the time a little bit more? Why do I not hear seven 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 ninety three eleven at every birthday party I go to?
5: Yo, let me tell you, that that music, like, that song in particular, see, I was, you guys probably weren't even born when it came out, but I was, like, in elementary school, and that was our joint. Like, we all was 777-93-11. But, I mean, they got the time has, like, gigalos get lonely, too. They got ice cream castles. They were very, very funky, soulful, like, talented cats. So I agree with you. And they created a whole thing, like, Morris Day and Jerome. So, like, them and Prince were, like, all from the same Same type of elk at the the end of the day, you know? Musicians, great musicians.
1: Yeah. I mean, I feel like I discovered the time. Well, through that song, obviously, and my uh, mom and grandmother playing the music. But when I learned that Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis were in the time before they went on and started producing, because we're Janet fans here. So uh, that was when I did a whole deep dive.
5: Yeah. I love Janet, man. Janet is like special, boy. She... She deserved more and more recognition. I mean, she's like s- still lighting it up, still amazing. And when that Pleasure Principle came out, I was all in, like, I mean, I already liked her from her first project, even some of the music. But and of course I loved her from seeing her in different strokes and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. but to hear Pleasure Principle in that album, and she got classics, man. Classics.
1: Yeah. I've just always been a fan of yours. So thank you for being here.
5: Thank you guys for having me. It's been fun to talk to you all. and uh, I appreciate the love.
2: Defeat somebody else at Miniature Golf and tell us about it again. So I think this is an ongoing saga (laughs) that we should keep updating.
5: (laughs) Maybe I'll be one of you guys. Yes. (laughs) We'll see
2: about that. We will see about that. All right. Okay. (laughs)
1: Since we are celebrating Lisa Frankenstein today, we thought we would continue to honor Mary Shelley, inventor of sci-fi and patron saint of horror fiction, sure. and discuss our entries for most iconic women and scream queens in horror. Um, see what I did there? I read books. Um, also, I am going to admit that I am an idiot and say that I just now got Lisa Frankenstein. Lisa Frank. That's correct.
4: <laughs>
3: I mean, it 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 works as a pun. It actually yeah, wasn't the deliberate. Pun. Okay, um, really? Yeah, no, it wasn't. I I named the character Lisa because of uh, Lisa from, as a tribute to Lisa from Weird Science, who was this created mm. car- woman, the fantasy woman who was created by these two nerds. And I had always yeah. kind of, I had always been kind of interested in that sort of Pygmalion genre of movies, and thought, why don't we do this with a guy?
2: Pygmalion so, genre movies, which by the way also Pygmalion, refers to. Poor things and born yesterday. I'm glad you put a label on that. That's
3: yeah, lovely. Yeah. So that- disturbing
2: movie,
1: by the way. I re- I like hadn't seen it since I was a kid. I feel like I watched it last year, at a certain point, and I was like, oh, hmm. But um, which one am I talking about? Last weird science. Oh, yeah, weird no, science a movie. is a that
3: is a little bit disturbing. Yeah,
1: yeah. The TV show, however, on the USA was very funny. <laughs> there was a there was a half hour comedy version of it that aired for I believe two or three seasons. It was really funny.
3: No, I, I'm delighted because I actually didn't know that. And like, I'm happy to hear that there was a weird science TV show. Weird. I love when they make weird TV shows of movies.
2: Oh, yeah, like there was the, the Working Girl TV show? Yes. Yeah, right. Mm. Remember
3: when they tried to do, um they tried to do Look Who's Talking as like a TGIF sitcom with Tony Danza doing the baby's voice? <laughs> <laughs>
2: It's also so predictable in a way, too. You can't believe it actually. actually go through with it. Like, okay, popular yes. movie, and who's not exactly Bruce Willis? Tony Danza. Yeah. yeah.
3: Well, no, I don't. I felt like that was shade. And oh, no, I, I enjoy uh, him. Okay, just making sure.
2: Anybody who's in the Mary Lou Hennerverse is a friend of mine. Yeah. Okay, Burke, we'll start with you. Sorry. Are there f- f- women in horror movies who have most appealed to you?
3: Absolutely. And the number one answer for me is Nancy from the Nightmare on Elm Street series, played by Heather. Absolutely. Lengenham. Yeah. Great, I mean, I I grew up watching Nancy, wanting to be Nancy. Um, Just, they did so much with the character over the course of the series. I mean, yeah, Nancy Head.
2: Um, I I, I still think top three scariest scenes of all time is the dream sequence where she's going up the stairs and then this is just a dream it isn't real this is just a dream it isn't real i mean the the paralyzing quality of it like i i don't know what a sleep demon is but that feeling of like something being on your chest that you can't it's that kind of bracing terror yeah which i can't which Mm. i would even say like texas chainsaw massacre which is maybe my favorite horror movie is not as scary as that
3: no and it's it's the yeah the idea of like if you manage to if or if you fall asleep you're susceptible and everybody has to fall asleep. Eventually there's like no avoiding this, this monster. And I just, I was so terrified of Freddie growing up. And then I made Freddie part of my personality. I saved up all my money, went to Waterford video and bought a Freddie Krueger t-shirt. And I wore it like every day. And then I was like, I'm not scared of Freddie anymore. I think I'm like a Freddy person.
2: Mm. And what does that, what does that mean to you? <sighs> I mean this is Freud's last session I'm sitting in
3: no but I mean think about Freddy like he's so glib he's really Mm. been through it he's walked through the fire I feel like I am a Freddy Krueger archetype
2: okay Mm. you see him as almost pioneering in a way
1: yeah I do
3: (laughs) I do I think he's a really strong woman (laughs)
1: <laughs> I mean, you think of in a sliding doors universe where Freddie wasn't, you know, a child murderer. Oh yeah. Uh, Never he mind. Was, he, he, he was probably he was he was probably an aspiring stand-up because he is constantly cracking jokes in all of those movies, all these puns. I'm like, he was probably a pretty funny Welcome to murderer. Prime Time,
3: bitch, iconic. And then she yes. crashes her head into the television. Amazing. Exactly.
1: That, that's a really and, good line. Yeah. <laughs> and that is my favorite <laughs> nightmare, uh, the Dream Warriors. That Nancy Nancy is That's such a arc one. in these, by the way. You get to in, you meet her in the first one, uh, and she has to put up with um her alcoholic mother. Iconic, by the way, when you rewatch that movie and sort of realize how the vodka bottle that her mom is drinking gets bigger uh, in each scene (laughs) that she's in. And uh, then, you know, her dad's there, her boyfriend is an idiot, and he's also Johnny Depp. Um, But, you know, she stops Freddie with her Home Alone sort of thing in the first movie. And then you get to Dream Warriors where... She's she's been through it. She has the gray so, streak. I was gonna in her say hair. the gray streak
3: is everything because you're just like <laughs> seasoned. And she
1: recognizes Freddie. She saves these kids, sacrifices herself at the end, and then we also get a new nightmare, which takes place in the real world, um, uh, where you get to see her and Wes Craven and her playing herself, and it's just Nancy's just a really great um, horror movie character.
2: Ira, who would you select in this regard? I'm actually, I want to say I could guess it, but maybe I can't. Hmm. Mm. It's got to be Who something. do you think? It wouldn't be Halloween universe, I don't think. I mean, I'm going, oh, you're a scream person. So I'm going to yeah. say you're going to, but who are you going to pick in the scream universe? I'm going to go with, you wouldn't, you're not going to go Parker Posey, you're going to go Nev Campbell. I'm gonna go Gail Weathers.
1: Because I was gonna go Gail Gail Weathers. Gail Weathers. (laughs)
4: Yeah. That is so
2: me. (laughs) Because, like, her cynical remove was so refreshing. And of course, that's all a part of, like, a certain era of movies where, like, you know, in, in Clueless, you're watching people who not only are funny themselves, but seem to be tossing off every line, like, here I am, funny again. You know? And I feel like that was the nature she brought to scream like, she doesn't even react to the killing. She's like, and let's go to camera. <laughs> I just love that shit. It's so, it's so real too. It, That's how somebody She makes it do, real. Yeah. yeah. She makes
1: it real specifically because she is that um, Nancy Grace-ish character. It's Whenever you're watching these slasher films, it often feels like bodies are piling up and is anyone even noticing? Do people actually even really care? You're mostly just staying in the POV of the teens who are being butchered, right? And for her being this you know, craven, power-hungry newswoman who's sort of like... She's Faye Dunway in Network, right? Like, she's running around. She doesn't care that these kids are being murdered. She just wants to get the story. And then, even though you humanize her a bit when you get to Scream 2, she still once again snaps back into, okay, but I got to get the story. And it's just that beautiful stuff between her and Nev Campbell in the beginning where she's written... The book uh, about how maybe Cotton didn't do it, and uh, you know Sydney didn't know what she was talking about when she was IDing her mother's killer. She's like, "I'll send you a copy," and then she gets hit. And then when you get to Scream Two, uh, and she once again goes after Sydney, when she's like, "Sydney, share with us, please." And then she gets punched again. I'm like, that is a
2: beautiful character that really doesn't exist in a lot of other horror movies. She and Sydney are very formidable for each other too. Like they surprisingly challenge each other at uh unexpected moments very exciting you know who i'm going to pick as my favorite woman in all of horror janet lee in psycho because first mm. of all of, of course the the gag of she's only in it for 20 minutes and she's the hugest thing on the poster we love that the 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 trick of all time um uh the matinee idol being you know butchered before we even get to act 2 really but just she runs away with a bunch of money her dead eyes as she is driving and we are just looking int- looking at her maybe hoping to sympathize with her, hoping we're going to get a character who feels like a normal protagonist. But no, she's just cold and hard and leaving. And then she meets uh, Anthony Perkins, the hottest man who ever lived, as Norman Bates. And the conversation (laughs) they have, she's both intrigued and like annoyed and a little interested in how naive and strange he seems. But of course, then we cut her off. Like There's so much left to think about her character and wonder about her character, and we only get a a taste of it uh, at the beginning of that movie. I just think Psycho, among movies you're told holds up, feels shockingly modern, even among uh, among any movie released in the 60s. And of course, it was released in 1960.
3: You're making me want to watch it again.
2: Oh, it's such a pleasure. Um, (laughs) It's really, really good. And Vera Miles, who plays her sister, still with us. Uh, she was also in the Hitchcock movie, The Wrong Man, from '57, with Henry Fonda. Not his best. <laughs> <laughs> there's
1: something about that scene where she's sitting with um, Anthony Perkins too, and you know, there's the there's the taxidermy, and it's just it's just it's the, the such gross a little chilling, sandwich they're
2: eating. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah,
1: it's such a beautiful chilling scene. I mean, I I love that film, and we've always talked about how that's one of his better. Um, Films, people always try to say that it's um Vertigo, but I would always put Psycho above Vertigo, and she's just it just starts out so great. I love his blonde schemers, you know, like even oh, yeah. like Marnie when she's running around stealing from safes and things, you know. <laughs> um I I love that re I don't love it. I do always think it is interesting as a film piece, um, the shot by shot remake that Gus Van Sant did mm. of it. But I do think that if any film, maybe, is sort of ripe for a reimagining. Maybe it's Marnie, actually, because I think that Marnie is a good Hitchcock thriller and horror, but I would like to see a woman direct it, actually, yeah. to be honest. There's a
2: lot of crazy things going on in that movie that are very, uh, need to be reevaluated. Yeah, problematic. I mean, like, it's a very unusual role for uh, Sean Connery, first of all. But, um, let's talk about the psycho remake for a second. Anne Hache energy important to you?
3: Yeah, of course.
2: I just feel I'm. I I'm sure we have talked about this before, but I still feel like we don't have another. What is the thing about her I still love? I what I, the thing I loved about Anne Haege. She brought seventies urgency to nineties. I didn't feel like there was nobody oh, else who I did like that. that. You know, like it's like a performance in like Clute where like staring down the barrel and everything is like this and intense. And maybe mm-hmm. I'm gonna scream. Maybe I'm not. Only Anne Haege did that. Twenty years after the. No, fact. you're right. You know.
3: Yeah. No, I love I love Anne Haege.
2: Yeah, birth. Come on.
3: It wasn't I know what you did last summer. When yes. Swingers came out and then suddenly Vince Vaughn, do you remember there was a moment where Vince Vaughn was like, he was kind of having a moment that like Timmy's having right now? Oh, totally. Where it was like mm-hmm. he was going to, like, he was being courted by like the biggest directors. And, and obviously things worked out well for Vince Vaughn. Like he did have a huge career. It was just interesting. I, I, I just remember there being this like incredibly hot, incandescent Vince Vaughn moment in culture.
2: And then we picked sort of conventional comedies for him to do, which maybe don't live up to that moment. I would compare it to, I always lament that, uh, speaking of the Oscars, when Angelina Jolie won for Girl Interrupted, you kind of thought you were seeing the beginning of the world's snarkiest actress. And then you got sort of anything but. She she remained mainstream and has all these great projects and stuff, but she never did that thing again where we're talking about her in a Ooh, like a, a percolating, what will she do? How how, how will she uh, uh, unsettle us uh, yeah. going forward in movies? You know what I mean. I mean, I would also say that it's largely some of the
1: roles that he sort of did right after Swingers, because you know they they tried to do a lot with Vince Vaughn. I don't think anyone needs to rewatch uh, a cool dry place, uh, right, with uh, Joey Lauren Adams and Monica Potter. Uh, I believe he was also in the Lost World Jurassic Park. He was. And he right. sort of just, and then Psycho happens, and then that's sort of a flop. Uh, and he sort of just sort of like circled around trying to find things to do until he sort of really came into that um, Ben Stiller, Will um, Ferrell universe. And then once. Zoolander, Dodgeball, Old School sort of happens. That's when we get sort of the Vince Vaughn that we have
2: now. Right? I am always intrigued by those moments where you get like an auspicious debut, but it's also a weird kind of actor. The person I'm thinking of right now is Jesse Eisenberg in The Squid and the Whale. And then it's like, wow, awesome performance, and it could only be you. We don't have other movies like that, so what will
3: come yeah. next for you? <laughs> you
2: know?
3: That's interesting. He's a, he's a great example of that. You know, yeah.
1: Yeah. What's also interesting, to bring it back to... Uh, Lisa Frankenstein, is um he d- went into playing creepy so well as an adult. And I love Vince
2: Vaughn opposite Catherine Newton in Freaky. Oh, have not
1: seen it. I
3: haven't seen that.
2: Catherine Newton, just in general, by the way. Yeah. I, Amazing. Utterly engrossing.
4: hmm
1: It's a uh, Chris Landon um, film. You know, he had to pull out of the new Scream movie. And he had done, you know, the Happy Death Day movies, the Paranormal Activity Gay screenwriter, director, Freaky is basically Freaky Friday as a slasher movie. Vince Vaughn is a serial killer um who swaps bodies with uh Catherine Newton and then she starts going on a spree killing her friends. I didn't know. And about she's this. trapped
2: in his body. Yeah. So, I'm into it. Um I do want to bring up Halloween really quickly. I think Halloween To me, the thing that stands out other than it's full of women and I like each of the characters in a different way, even like the bratty babysitter characters. I don't think suburbia has ever been better realized on film. I think that is my number one in the suburbs movie, even though the house in the film is literally in West Hollywood, as I discovered only a few weeks ago.
3: Yeah, which is strange, right? And, Doesn't it feel and like they're walking this, around
2: Illinois? Yeah. It does,
3: it yeah. does. And I, I mean, I'm sure I'm not the only person afflicted by this, but to this day, if I'm walking past like a row of hedges on a sidewalk, and like, what is behind it? Right. You know what I mean? It
2: has to be something. Yeah, yeah definitely.
1: Uh, I also want to say that Largely, you know, when we're thinking about these women in these films, I also could have said that I loved Jada Pinkett Smith in Scream 2. I really think that her opening in the film is so fun. Talk about a a cynical remove, yeah. And it talks about race in horror movies, and unfortunately it doesn't end up working in the film with the point being driven home because of the script changes. In the original Scream 2, Hallie, um, Sydney's roommate, was the killer. Uh Along with Mickey, and so if there's a black woman who is ghost face at the end of it, then I think that that bookends a lot better with the opening, yeah, with Jada Peekett Smith, but I think that like I don't know we've had so much like queer coded horror and like things like the blackening, which are great, but I'm sort of still interested in seeing like what other kind of final girls. There are in the horror world for us to get, you know, uh, beyond you know the Nancys and the Nev Campbell. So that is sort of what I'm looking forward to: to women in horror, but also I'd like to see someone really do something good with like gay men in horror too. That's not just, I mean, as much as I love Nightmare on Elm Street I too, was literally just which gonna is say. very, very yeah. queer coded. But like, how do you do that film now and have it sort of resonate in a way? Um, that, you know, I made, made people feel the way that you felt watching Nancy
2: in A Nightmare on Elm Street when you were a kid, you yeah. know? Hmm. I would like to see, like, basically the boys in the band, but it's a horror movie. You know, th- those guys having if that That is a horror movie, yeah. Lewis.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
2: when they gather around that phone, yeah. Internalized homophobia is the killer in that one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All
1: right, when we are back, it is our favorite segment, Keep It.
2: And now it's time for our favorite segment of the episode, the Keep It segment. Let's be crazy. Ira, you started off this time. What are you saying Keep It to this week? Okay, so I watched this documentary
1: last night on Netflix called American Nightmare, which is about the kidnapping of Denise Huskins. Uh, Her boyfriend, Aaron Quinn, tells the police that um, they're awoken in the middle of the night. Uh, Someone puts like, Goggles on his face, uh, makes him drink Dayquil and maybe diazepam to be knocked out, ties him up. Um, the kidnapper's wearing like a wetsuit, putting a flashlight in his face, and then takes Denise. Um, and he doesn't report it until like 1 p.m. the next day because he's like drowsy and has to get untied, etc. And what happens is it's, it's a documentary, which could be like a full movie, but it's split into three parts because it's Netflix. Um, they show, you know, from the boyfriend's perspective, and then they show from Denise's perspective, and then you get to the truth of it. And what happens is you find out that this was being called a real-life Gone Girl, because uh, what happens is she is kidnapped, and everyone thinks that he sort of killed her, and then... She's basically dropped off at her parents' place, seemingly unharmed, and now they accuse them of doing this whole hoax and whatever. Um, What happens is a car gets stolen, a Mustang, a white Mustang, which sort of leads them in a sideways at another police department in another city because the people have stopped investigating. They think that it's a hoax and everything. And they find out that this was true. It was like this person who was continuously breaking into women's homes and attacking them, um, assaulting them, etc. So it's sort of like you see how, you know, the police suck, etc. But my real keep it in this is that I have more questions about the FBI and their investigation of this. Because you find out that Denise was not the intended kidnapping victim. What happened is he was dating another – he worked at a hospital in a rehab unit, uh, him and Denise, and his ex, this um, woman named Andrea. The person was planning to kidnap Andrea and did not know that he was back together with Denise because he had broken up with her and then gotten back together with her. We also come to find out that one of the investigating FBI agents – Is dating Andrea the (laughs) ex-girlfriend? No, I was
3: so angry. You have no idea. And also, I you saw this. Oh, no, I watched it. Yes. And and I wish we had heard from Andrea, too. Because can you imagine the survivor's guilt that woman must feel that she was the intended target for this nightmare experience? And then it just, he happened to take the new girlfriend instead? Like, it was, and also, it just, it made me terrified to ever report a crime, ever. I mean, they just wanted those people to be locked up.
4: Yeah,
1: they wanted them to be locked up, and not even just the survivor's guilt of Andrea. Then don't you start wondering? You're like, why was I about to be kidnapped? And then you, I would also start to wonder why did my boyfriend, um, who's in the FBI, basically stop investigating this? And you have to start wondering, was he involved for some reason? I didn't. I think that that, because they talk about sort of this potential, maybe like ring or people involved in these kidnappings and my conspiracy theory is that he was jealous of andrea and her ex-boyfriend being close again and he had hired this person to kidnap andrea but things went awry and the niece got kidnapped uh and then he had to
2: kill the investigation to cover it up you said the word Denise so many times. I've been thinking of Lisa Bonet this entire time. I'm sure she has nothing to do with Lisa Bonet.
1: I just think it's very crazy to be investigating um, a
2: case uh, involving your current girlfriend.
1: No, it was a clear
3: ex. conflict of interest. Yeah.
2: Yeah, that makes no sense. Okay, well, that was... I guess I have to see this now. Not that I didn't just see it right here, but okay. But it's infuriating. You'll be angry at every
1: turn watching it. And it's just a reminder that most true crime documentaries are always coming away being like, the police are useless. Why would you report any crime? And also they're just criminals running around planning to (laughs) murder you. And if you want to get away with a crime, do it in a sort of really crazy, insane way, because then when someone reports it to the police, the police won't believe them. Yeah, they'll think you concocted a
3: crazy yarn. Yeah.
2: If you come away with anything from Keep It in our six years on the show, let it be (laughs) that. Brooke. how to get away with murder yes right <laughs> Brooke do you have a keep it for us this week anything keep, that's bothering my you my
3: keep it is very petty and it's that I waited like at least a year for a new season of the Netflix show Love on the Spectrum which oh. I love
4: mm, and it's it, so good it's
3: so amazing and it came back and I, I they gave us there's not enough I watched the entire new season in like a, a couple of nights and I still have so many questions and there's this character on there named Steven and I desperately, character, he's a human being. I desperately need him <laughs> to find love. I need it to happen mm. and it didn't happen last season and I was like, this is it. Steven's going to find his person and like, I won't be satisfied if they don't find a person for Steven. and I don't think they did a good job with his matches. I don't think the producers did a good job with his matches. His date was really hard to watch and I just feel like I want more for Stephen and I, I think about him a lot. And so I guess mm. I'm I don't really know Steve who is the I'm the older angry guy, at. right? He is the older guy. He lives in mm-hmm. San Francisco. He's a delight. He's such a sweet man. And it's like I just I'm very invested in everybody on Love and Spectrum.
2: I truly have um, resisted watching that show because I know it's gonna be um, incredibly touching. But I, you, there was a there was a short documentary a couple of years ago about um, uh, Rubik's Cube experts. Yeah, I watched that. Yeah, well, the Cubers, maybe yeah. it was called. And there was a uh, one kid on the spectrum. I literally found it so touching. I could not. I could barely get through the forty-minute documentary about this. To watch this show all the way through would be. I. 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 I just don't know if I could do it.
3: It's really good. Yeah. It's really well made, and I don't want. I, I shouldn't say I do watch reality, but like not. I don't watch that many shows like this, and I'm just completely hooked on it. And like, yeah, I feel a real uh, parasocial relationship with Steven. <laughs>
2: It's also very funny. It
3: Lewis. is funny, so it, yeah.
2: it's funny. Okay, I'll find a way in. I guess I, I truly have, like, I also it's I, I just resist. Um, this, this is speaking of petty awkwardness in my own life, and so to even glean one moment of like a conversation where whatever, it's just uh, I need to do the work of just watching the show. Anyway, I will. I will do that. It might yeah. help, Lewis. <laughs> You're worried for
3: me? It's just very unusual in this day and age to watch people on a reality series that are not being performative. And are, like, truly... Oh, my
2: God. So true. Yeah. It's like there's,
3: like... You actually get to witness these, like, captured authentic interactions between people. That's why I love it so much.
2: And I've, like, kind of trained myself to love the... uber prepared reality stars like when you watch Drag Race now like everybody knows how short their tidbits need to be yeah, and yeah. their quotes and like what they're literally their angles are as that we get a memeified reaction from them as they you know it's like I, I end up mm-hmm. liking those things to get the total okay, opposite Lewis, would be nice
1: can I say though side note about this season of Drag Race it is fun when someone tries to do that and then stumbles which then makes them kind of more human because they kind yeah. of still don't know what they're doing and I'm talking about Plain Jane, yeah, <laughs> who I love. Plain Jane is a cunt, yeah, uh, and mean also yes. a mean person, but also just sort of saying something mean about people, just to say something mean and starting fights in untucked, sort of just to start a fight. And there's a part of Plain Jane when you watch him in confessionals, like you can see he's trying to make fun TV and be that mean person but not doing it with enough wit. So it sort of fumbles and then they're confused when other people respond in sort of witty ways. I don't know. It's so interesting. And we haven't really had a mean bitch on Drag Race Obviously, in forever. Because yes, they've all felt afraid of being attacked online for being mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, so,
2: Right, definitely. Um, uh, it reminds me a little bit of the Defuan character from uh, 30 Rock. You know, who like (laughs) tries to have the catchphrase and then it just falls on deaf ears and everyone's like looking side to side. It's really funny. Okay, Mike, keep it. Um, Mike, uh, I could say keep it to a number of things that didn't get nominated for Oscars this year, but I think the one I am saltiest about, and this is a bone of contention between Ira uh, and me, Mm -hmm. is Priscilla. I thought Jacob Elordi was the supporting performance of the year. The amount of people in this lifetime who have played Elvis and it's such a familiar uh, person and legend and like we've seen every outsized version of Elvis over the years. I, you know what? Maybe the Kurt Russell version holds up. But I thought he played him so believably, as in that reminds me of Elvis and also seems like what he would be like at home. I just don't think I've ever seen that before. I'm surprised he... It's a Sophia Coppola movie. I'm surprised it didn't play more in that way. Um, I'm, I continue to be excited for Jacob Elordi, even though the SNL episode wasn't really it for me. But uh I liked his promo for the SNL episode where he couldn't go down the stairs. I thought that was funny. I think that people are maybe elvised out. <laughs> There's after not too. No. Austin yeah.
1: Butler. Yeah. You know, I I think the movie sort of came and went a bit. I mean, I am a Priscilla hater as and you know you love it and you know I like Barbie a bit more than you did. That those were our bones of contention this year. And it is weird because I love Sofia Coppola. Yeah. I truly do love Sofia Coppola. Kirsten and so, Dunst in I The beguiled That's
2: another performance that yeah. should have been
1: more talked about. Right. Yeah. It just didn't, as much as I love Elordi and I thought he was amazing as Elvis, it just really didn't altogether hit for me I just because of the rest of the movie. I don't know, I feel like people really just off that high of Austin Butler weren't really trying to think about another Elvis movie this year.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, like the that movie, the Elvis movie, uh, the Baz Luhrmann, that's really giving you Folly's Bergere level uh, spectacle all the time. <laughs> and then, I guess I should say Moulin Rouge-level spectacular, moving on. Um, and this was, you either dialed into how muted it was, or you didn't. So I actually, I'm sympathetic to where you're coming from, even though I'm coming from the correct place.
5: <laughs> mm.
2: Well, you know, I, Jacob Elordi will get honored. Yeah, I'm not
5: worried about him. I don't know why this
2: is my keep it. Imagine being like, "Oh no, not Jacob Elordi! Not getting 50 more chances." I'm sure he'll be. in 50 I know other he'll things. be
3: okay. Yeah,
2: right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I do. I will we'll say that I feel like he is one of the you know
1: the few. Uh, you know, this year was the year of what you know male actor in their late 20s is everyone obsessed with, and I feel like there's like 15 of them, and there's probably more coming out of the woodwork who I don't know. Um, but. I don't know. He still seems like one of the top ones to me. Like, he's he's a really good actor. Yeah, I think he has really great tracks. comedic timing. Uh, I also didn't really love the SNL episode, but I loved the promo he did was better, was funnier to me than the whole episode. That's what I, that's, the, that's what I did thought. You see the promo yeah. where he was trying to go down the stairs, yes. and no, that was really funny. Very funny. Yeah. yeah.
2: Physical comedy, Um, we haven't gotten that from him yet That was nice to see
1: And he's tall, physical comedy from someone that tall just works I don't know why it does, but it just works Uh,
2: Cody Smith-McPhee, if you're out there listening This is your chance (laughs) Get him and Elizabeth Debicki in a
1: movie together I was just going to
3: say Elizabeth Debicki (laughs) We need her to be the rom-com heroine who falls down (laughs) Yes Just legs for days Splayed in the air You
2: know the movie No Hard Feelings This is Hard Feelings Because she falls hard
1: Yeah, (laughs) Yeah,
3: exactly
2: All right Them as tall people Who can't walk (laughs) Yes, yes (laughs) Diablo Brooke Thank you so much For being here And also spewing What you know About pop culture And Vanna White And horror And everything you are
3: Thank you for having me This this is just The most fun podcast to do of them all
2: oh thank you when is Lisa oh. Frankenstein officially
3: out oh February 9th
2: perfect Valentine's yes. Day fair perfect yeah,
3: it is it is totally a Valentine's movie I'm actually psyched about that because I think you know sometimes when you're writing something like this everyone's like Halloween release and then Halloween people want to see people get stabbed and st-. you know like this yeah. is different it's like not competing with the slashers this is a romantic movie it's fun
1: also great performance in Lisa Frankenstein Carla Gugino. Oh, imagine not I loving her. Love what her.
3: What a queen! I, I, I deliberately, I, I, like made sure that I was on set for her stuff because I was like, I just want to fan out, and I did.
2: Yeah, she's been so funny for forever. She, she, uh, she's so good. Like you, you when she's in a movie, I'm like, oh, I'm taken care of. This is nice.
3: Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah. You know what? Can you stick her? Um, can you stick her and David Spade in that movie? Yeah, right.
3: Oh man, that's gonna be. My opus.
2: You really awakened something <laughs> in my brain with that. He
3: really I, is capable. I'm of that. not wrong.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Give us your racing Arizona.
2: <laughs> oh, we can go darker
1: than that, please. Yeah, <laughs> Maybe that's say. not dark enough.
2: <laughs> More like he's uh, like breaking well, the waves or something. Yeah.
1: Yes. <laughs> uh, thank you for being here. It's always a delight. Yeah.
3: Thank you for having me. I love it.
1: Yeah. Uh, uh, and thank you to Common for being here. Uh, as well, who was also very delightful. He He's a serious person, but also a very funny person, and a very charming person, and all three of us are
2: dating him now. So, sorry, J-Hud. And apparently he's a better miniature <laughs> golfer than Serena Williams, which uh, if you take a second thing from Keep It, I hope you take that. <laughs>
1: Don't forget to follow Crooked Media on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. You can also subscribe to Keep It on YouTube for access to full episodes and other exclusive
2: content. And if you're as opinionated as we are, consider dropping us a review. Keep It is a Crooked Media production. Our producer is Chris Lord, and our associate producer is Malcolm Whitfield. Our executive producers are Ira Madison III, Louis Vertel, and Kendra James. Our digital team is Megan Patzel, Claudia Shang, and Rachel Gajewski. This episode was recorded and mixed by Evan Sutton. Thank you to Matt DeGroot, David Tolls, Kyle Seglin, and Charlotte Landis for production support every week.